turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy, it's the fifth book in the Bible, so you start at the beginning and work your way to the right. You will find Deuteronomy. And as you are turning there, I am going to pray for us. Father, this morning I, I ask that you would, you would be on display, that you would be strong in my weakness, that your words would be memorable and mine would not. And I know that your word and your word alone has the power to transform our hearts, and so we ask that you would do that. We trust in your promise, Spirit, that when the word goes out, it will not return without accomplishing what you intend for it to accomplish. And so we wait this morning with great expectation to see what it is that you want to accomplish in and through your people, through your word. Spirit, give us ears to hear and eyes to see and and the ability to understand what can only be understood with your help. Jesus, it's in your name that we pray and your name alone that we trust. Amen. So, we have been walking through our series in, through the Old Testament where we are covering basically the whole Old Testament in a couple of months. Um, no small feat. Um, but we want to help the family to understand the, why it's relevant, why it matters to us that this isn't the forgotten portion of the Bible, but that it is incredibly relevant, that it, it, is, it is telling the story that we are now a part of. And so we began at creation, which is a good place to start at the beginning. And, and at creation, God created everyone and everything uh, for, for His glory and in order that we would worship Him and enjoy Him forever. There's a purpose in creating us. Then then we studied what we call the fall or where mankind rebelled against God. We decided that we liked the idea of being in control more than we liked the idea of worshiping God and enjoying Him forever. And so we we rebel against God and as and as the result of that, sin becomes not only our day-to-day problem and struggle, but it becomes, in a sense, the sand in the gears of the universe, that, that all of nature and creation is affected by the fall, that fall introduced death and sin and mosquitoes uh, and weeds and, 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 and all awful things. Um, and then I'm only partially joking in that. I'm pretty sure there's no purpose outside of evil for mosquitoes. Um, but weeds, literally, it says in there, weeds and work and all of these things, not, not work in the sense of, of work because Adam and Eve were given a task in the garden, but, but work that feels fruitless, work that feels like a daily grind. That, that's all a part of the fall because the universe itself has been marred. God created it good and we broke it. And so we need redemption. And that is the next piece of the plan. And so we talked about how the the plan of redemption was set in motion, a plan that God established before he established time itself. So redemption was not a reaction. He didn't create everything good and then we broke it. And then God say, oh my goodness, I had no idea they were going to do this. Now I have to come up with a plan to fix what they broke. Now, Scripture is clear that before he spoke the first Adam into existence, he already had the plan in place to redeem and adopt his creation. And so we talked about how Abraham was the first to hear 
of what this was going to look like and that God established a path to Jesus. And then we talked about in Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and how God established a path to Jesus there, that, that, that the, the salvation would come through Jesus and then through those, those men, uh, the, the family line is established. And then in Egypt, God grows his family in captivity. And then in the Exodus, Jay talked about how, how the people were, were galvanized in the wilderness and that God does some of his best work in the wilderness. What we're going to talk about this morning is how he gives them the law. So as part of their time in the wilderness, God gives them the law. And we're going to do uh, a, a couple things this morning. There's going to be a, a teaching portion of this morning and a preaching portion of this morning, okay? And I'm not splitting a the hair there. There is a difference. And so the first portion is going to be teaching. We're going to talk about the law a little bit uh, and, and, and try to unpack what that looks like and why it's important. And then, uh, and then there will be a preaching portion at the end where, where I'm going to talk about why we should care and, and, and what it means for us right now. So initially, I want to look at, um, let's see, my technology is broken, so I might need a little help from the back. Ah, there we go. Thank you. Hey, and there it goes. Popped up. Excellent. Win-win. Okay. So, uh, the reason for the law, I want to talk about four primary, not the only reasons, but what I believe and what I see in Scripture as four primary reasons that God gave the law to His people. The first reason is to form their hearts and their lives. The second reason is as a guardian or, or in a manner of speaking, like a foster parent. The third reason is to expose their sin or their unholiness. And the fourth reason, ultimately, is to point them and us to Christ. So I'm going to walk through each of these points in the first portion of this, and then we'll unpack why those are so important. So the first one, to form their lives and their hearts. For that, we can turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6, which, as it turns out, immediately follows Deuteronomy chapter 5 which should come as no surprise. Um, chapter 5 is where we see the Ten Commandments, or the Decalogue is another fun way to say that one. And immediately after this, God, through Moses, declares to his people in chapter 6, starting in verse 4, says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might, with everything that you have and everything that you are. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Translation, all the time. All day, every day, this is something that you are considering, marinating on, meditating on, and speaking about and teaching others. Every day, throughout the day. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, or they will determine what you do. And they shall be as frontlets between your eyes, or they will be the lens that you see the world through. And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. 
or they will be the thing that determine how you lead and live as a family and as a people. So God, God gives them the law and then tells them, this, is, this, this defines who you are. This is the lens that you see the world through. This is what you do every day. This is what you're constantly talking about. He gives people the law through Moses as a means of establishing habits of worship, habits of work and of family and, and everyday relationships. Because he has created us to be habit-formed. We think of ourselves as being in control of our head, that we form habits, but really the habits form us. Not only do habits accomplish tasks, but habits teach us and form us. The things that we do every day or the things that we don't do day in and day out, no matter how seemingly mundane, shape our hearts. They shape what we love. They shape what we trust. They shape what we fear and what we worry about. And what you do every day right now is who you will become a year from now. And only more so 10 years from now. So the Jews were given this, these particular habits to practice so that they would become a particular people. God lays out, these are the habits that I want to develop in you. And as you practice these habits, it's going to shape your hearts into trusting certain things, into distrusting certain things, into desiring things, into fleeing from other things. Your heart will be shaped in this direction. So he gave them a ceremonial law, which centers around the tabernacle and established specific worship habits for them. And he gave them a civil law or a civic law which, which centered around Israel as a nation and gave them habits and, and, uh, uh, and cultural norms that would separate them from the people around them so that you could see how different this culture was from all of the cultures surrounding them. And then he gives them a moral law, which is a more universal or transcendent set of rhythms that establish them as the people of God. And this last one, the moral law, or what we refer to as the Ten Commandments, is unique from the other aspects of the law in some pretty significant ways. One is the fact that according to the Torah or, or the first five books of the Bible, the, those are the only ones specifically written by the finger of God himself, which I don't even really understand, quite frankly, how that even works. But God himself writes these on tablets of stone. And those tablets of stone containing the Decalogue are the only ones that are placed in the Ark of the Covenant and kept in the Holy of Holies, which is a pretty big deal. They're also the only ones out of all of them that could be practiced by anyone at any time in any culture. It transcends all culture and all law and all time. And all of them, at some point throughout his ministry, are mentioned and affirmed, and many even expanded on, by Jesus himself. So there's something unique that is happening in this portion of the law, and, and we're going we're to touch on that a little bit later. But so they were habits given 
to form a people. The next one is that they were given as a guardian or a foster parent, in a manner of speaking. And I love, I love how Paul puts this in Galatians. Um, anybody who knows me or knows my family's story is probably not surprised that whenever we start talking adoption, I get a little excited. Um, we have our, our family is now 50% living, breathing pictures of what uh, Paul is talking about here. And so we love the daily reminders of what our Jesus has done in us and for us in our adopted children. So in Galatians, here's what he says. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So we're no longer under the care of the foster parent. We have been adopted into the forever family of Jesus. No longer are we under the temporary caretaker we are now forever members of the family. And, and ladies, don't be put off by the sons of God. That's not at the exclusion of daughters. It is an amazing statement. It says, for when we are in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. What Paul is saying is when we are united with Christ, the Father looks at us and sees his Son, sees Jesus in us. And treats us accordingly. That is extraordinary and beautiful and awesome and applies to all of us who are in Christ Jesus. So the law was put in place to care for the people of God until the promise made to Abraham was fulfilled in Christ and we could be adopted into his family. And the way Paul goes on to say it in the next chapter of Galatians is when the fullness of time had come. We're at exactly the perfect time in history. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. That is good news. That is good news. So at the perfect moment, God sends Jesus to be born under the law to redeem us out of the law and to adopt us into his family forever. So we are no longer under the guardian because we are in the family. So next... The law was given in order to expose our unholiness. The law was given to expose our sin. So what happened when the Jews got the law is they were understandably uh, excited at being chosen by God, multiple mishaps along the way, but ultimately they got pretty stoked on the idea of God gave us these rules and, and they misinterpreted them to understand these are the rules that will then make us holy. So if we follow all of these rules, we will become righteous and God will have to accept us. And so then they began to make rules on top of rules because what I, I, might, I might stumble in this way, so I need to make a rule that will make sure I'm never in a situation where I might possibly fail in this other rule. And so there were rules stacked on top of rules or 
there are some areas of the law were kind of confusing and they didn't know exactly what it meant. And we don't like confusion or uncertainty. We like things to be very clear and straightforward. And so when it says, don't work on the Sabbath, well, what does that even mean? What exactly is work? So let's make up another 15,000 rules defining what is and is not work so then we could all be really clear and also we know how to work our way around the rules to do what we really want to do and not technically be violating the law. Because here's the thing about rules. Rules do not ever protect us from sin. They only ever reveal it. Rules do not ever produce holiness. They only expose our lack of it. We always think, wow, the way to protect ourselves is to add more rules. That's how we will fix it. A, as though any rule I come up with is better than the ones that God established. Or B, as though if my heart were actually corrupt, I would be following the rule anyway. If I'm that corrupt, I'll just, I'll just ignore the rule. Rules don't ever protect us from sin and they never produce holiness in us. They only ever expose our sin and our unholiness. So Paul says, like, that's, that's the purpose of the law, to expose our sin, to reveal our sin. And so the, the question that his readers might ask and, and, and what he responds to is, so what shall we say then? Is the law, is, that the law is sin? He says, by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So the fact that God gave us the law is the thing that revealed how desperately wicked my heart is and how badly I need God to save me from myself. I would have just been plugging along in blissful ignorance, not realizing that I was walking in willful, constant rebellion to God. But when he lays the law out in front of me and says, this is what holiness looks like, and I go, well, wait a minute, I don't look anything like that. Exactly. And so once those things have been defined, then I realize what's actually going on in my heart. And so I say, well, I never, I never covet. You go, oh, have you ever um, uh, seen, been dissatisfied with what you have and felt that frustrating and, and, and that's taken a lot of your focus or maybe looked at something that somebody else had and wished that you had that instead of them? Well, sure, I do that all the time, constantly. That's called coveting. Oh, in that case, yes, I covet a lot, all the time, actually. So defining that helps me to understand what is actually going in in my heart. And I go, oh, no, no, that's just wanting a thing. Well, not when you are distracted by frustration and, and, and discontentment when you don't have that thing. That's actually not just not wanting a thing. That's called idolatry. It's covetous. It's hurting your heart. So, in order to expose it, it must be defined. The law of God is God's way of gently reminding you and me that we are not as awesome as we think we are. We convince ourselves that our obedience is so much better than somebody else's. Or at the very least, that their disobedience is much worse than my disobedience. I only sinned in these minor ways. I mean, would you even call it sin? Maybe an infraction? A, a struggle? I wouldn't even really call it a sin. It's really more of just a struggle. That person, though, that person is sinning. And we 
We believe that we deserve the gospel more than they do. Or the flip side of that is I can look at other people and say, I can never, I can never be as good as them. I don't, I don't deserve the gospel. I can never be as good as they are. They, the things that I have done, the things that I have thought, I don't see how that could ever be forgiven. See, the law is the 100,000-pound dumbbell. And the rule is, in order to be righteous, all you have to do is lift that thing up over your head. I look at that and we go, I can't, like, lift it over my head? I, I couldn't budge that thing a half a millimeter. Correct. And your inability to budge that thing a half a millimeter is no better or worse than the person sitting next to you's inability to budge that half a millimeter. We are all incapable. How, how can we be holy before God? There's only one way. To do every aspect of the law perfectly forever. And we look at that and we go, what? That's impossible. And God responds, precisely. I'm glad we're finally both on the same page. Allow me. When we fall into the trap of believing that that person doesn't deserve the gospel as much as I do because I have been so much more righteous or I could never earn the gospel that this person has because I could never be that good, we are not believing the gospel. We still believe that it is the law that will save us, a law that cannot possibly ever save us. And maybe you hear that and you think, well, this, this doesn't seem fair. Think of the story of the rich young ruler. He comes to Jesus and he's feeling pretty confident, right? If you're familiar with the story, he comes to him and he has the boldness to tell Jesus that he has kept the whole law. And he comes to Jesus and says, I've kept, I've kept the whole law. What is left for me to do to be welcomed into the kingdom? And, and you got to feel from his perspective, this is a rhetorical question, right? He's just, he's throwing this out there just so he can hear Jesus say, nothing, you nailed it. And imagine his surprise then when Jesus responds with, oh, you have, awesome. Then you should have no problem whatsoever selling everything you have and giving it to the poor because you've kept the law perfectly, which means you have no heart idols at all and there's nothing in you that would covet stuff. To which the rich young ruler replies, is that what that means to obey those? okay, I've been using the word obey wrong then and I'm actually not interested in that. And he walks away sad. Jesus knows his heart and knows, yeah, you've, you may have kept many aspects of the letter of the law, but it, is un, it has not touched your heart and that's where obedience actually is. And the fact that I can in one question expose your unwillingness to obey the law means you are keeping none of it. And you may hear that and you think that's not fair. Why does it have to be so hard? If God knew it was going to be this hard for us to follow the law, why didn't he give us an easier law? Then at least we'd have a chance, right? But what Paul tells us is if there were a law by which 
we could receive life, God would have given us that one. If it were possible that there were a list of rules that if we could just follow these things, then we would have life and life abundant, that's the list that God would have given us. But that list does not exist. It is impossible for the law to give life. Laws don't give life. For crying out loud, Adam and Eve had one rule. One rule. You get easier than that. It's as easy as it gets. One rule. If that's all the law was just one rule, we would be incapable of keeping it perfectly. He says it's impossible. And even if it were, if it were possible that we could be righteous by following the rules and doing such a good job, then Paul says in another place in Galatians, then Jesus' death on the cross was a worthless, pointless waste of time. The only way is for God to do it himself. He's the only one who can lift the weight, the only one who can fulfill the obligation of the law perfectly. The purpose of the law is to daily remind us of our inability to earn it. For us to look at this list and go, who could possibly ever do all of this stuff all the time perfectly? Oh, wait, nobody except Jesus. That's the point. We must throw ourselves on the mercy of our Jesus. And here comes the preaching part of the message. The whole law and the prophets is meant to point us to Jesus. That's the purpose of the Old Testament. The law was always pointing them and us to Jesus. And the fact that he is the only way to a right relationship with the Father and right worship of him. That he is the only means to save us from the righteous wrath of God and that he is the one who has already accomplished everything required to save us from the righteous wrath of God. The entire ceremonial law was all pointing to Jesus. All of what's happening in the tabernacle on the temple, it's all pointing to Jesus. And the book of Hebrews in the New Testament does an awesome job of unpacking each of these elements of the tabernacle law and saying, and, and, but Jesus is better. So yes, Moses, Moses was pointing to Jesus, but Jesus is better. The tabernacle was pointing to Jesus, but Jesus is better. The sacrifices were pointing to Jesus, but Jesus is better. The priesthood was all pointing to Jesus, but Jesus is better. Are you picking up on the theme? I hope so. All of it. Jesus fulfilled all of the law for the Father and for us. All of those things were temporary pictures pointing to the eternal. So Jesus is the eternal forever version of what all of these were temporary and pointing to. And when he on the cross declared, it is finished, he was ultimately declaring it has been fulfilled, which was his primary purpose, to fulfill the law for the Father and for us. What he tells us in the Sermon on the Mount is, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So he's not saying, that, that's nonsense. Let's just throw that one out and come up with a new plan. He says, no, 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 this 
this is coming to an end because I am wrapping it all up. I am fulfilling what all of this is pointing to, and now I am all of these things. I am fulfilling all of that. He goes on at the end of Luke. After his resurrection, he reminds them again and says to them, these are the words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Translation, the whole New Testament. The law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, everything, the prophets, the poetry, the Torah, all of it, it's all pointing to me, and I plan to fulfill every bit, every dotting of the I, every crossing of the T. Jesus accomplished what we never could. This is why this matters to us right now. This is why the law is still relevant, understanding that Jesus accomplished what we never could. Could. And even crazier, the fact that we are seen as having accomplished it through him. That's the part that boggles my mind. So look at, what, look at what Paul says in Romans here. He says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son. See, the law can't do it. It's not possible for the law to produce this in us. The law cannot give life. The law cannot save us. It's impossible for the law to do that. But he does what the law could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So for those of you who aren't following me, here's what he just said. Not only does God look at Jesus and say, When I look at Jesus, I see that Jesus has fulfilled the law. What Paul is saying is that when we are united with Christ, when God looks at us, he sees us as having fulfilled the law also through Jesus. So we get the medal for lifting the 100,000 pound dumbbell even though I couldn't budge the thing a half millimeter. But I still get the medal as though I am the one who lifted it because I'm united with the only one who can. That's a big deal. And understanding that is the thing that crushes our self-righteousness and motivates delighted obedience. We, we are credited for having accomplished something that we played no part in. Right? We couldn't even contribute to it. And in fact, I believe it's an insult to Jesus that we think that we can. The way one author put it that's always stuck in my head is he, he, he gave this scenario of, of you, owing a, you owe a million dollars. And someone comes along and, and you know, your rich uncle comes along and says, tell you what, I'm going to write a check for one million dollars and clear your debt right now. Done deal. Sign the check. It's not going to bounce. There you go. Your debt is paid in full, $1 million. And I respond with, that's, that's awesome. Hang on just a second. Um, let's see. Uh, 8, 9, 10, 11. Okay, 11 cents. Why don't you take that? And uh, now we can kind of say that was a team effort, right? I get to, I get to share some of the credit of covering this debt. Right? Not, not only is that nonsense, that's insulting to the person who just sacrificed a million dollars on your behalf 
to act as though my 11 cents just made that a 50-50 split of effort here. I I have less than that to offer in my own salvation. I have less than nothing to offer. The only thing I have to offer in my own salvation is an obstacle to it. And to act as though my obedience or my decision or something that I did is so important in contributing to this, Christ's cross alone got us most of the way there, but he really needed me to chip in on this part, is absurd and destructive. And when I believe that that's the case about me, I put an impossible burden of expectation on others that they have to contribute to their own salvation and not trust in Christ alone through the Spirit alone. I have nothing to offer but my surrender. We don't compromise with Jesus, right? We don't sit down with him and say, okay, here's what I'm going to bring to the table and here's what I hope you would bring to the table and we work out a deal. What I do with Jesus is lay down my arms in absolute unconditional surrender. That's what I have. And not just laying down my rebellion, but also laying down my self-righteousness. Also laying down all the things in me that think I can be good enough on my own. That I am better than the person sitting next to me because of my choices. I lay that down at the foot of the cross in surrender as well. And repent of that every bit as much as my open rebellion. Because both of those things are denying that Jesus is who he said he is and that he has done what he has done. Both of those are all about me and need to be surrendered at the cross. And rather than trusting in what I have done or believing I am disqualified because of what I have done, trusting in Jesus alone and the power of his spirit alone so that what the Son has accomplished is credited to us. No longer then do we follow a list of rules out of dutiful obligation or out of fear of punishment or out of hope of acceptance or out of a need to prove our own worth, but rather the Spirit of the living God has branded on our hearts the great commandment and the great commission so that our greatest delight and joy becomes a passionate moment-to-moment daily pursuit of loving God with everything that I am and everything that I, that I have and, 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 and working as hard to love others as we do to love ourselves. If you still believe that you are saved by following the rules or because of anything that you have done, you are not understanding or believing the gospel. If you believe that now because of the cross, obedience doesn't matter, you are not understanding or believing the gospel. If you believe that you don't deserve the gospel, that you can never be good enough to earn it, you can never be as good as whoever the person is that you think is so good that they deserve the gospel, you believe you can never work hard enough or be good enough to earn it, to you I say, you're right. And neither am I. There's not a single person in this room, there's not a single person that has ever lived on this earth apart from Jesus Christ that is. Do not let 
your fear that you are not good enough to earn the gospel be the thing that makes you run from Jesus. Let it be by God's grace to be the thing that makes you run into his open and waiting arms. Where he says, I know you can't do it. That's why I did. I'm not surprised by your inability. That's why I came, because you're unable. And because I love you, because I love the Father and I love you, that's why I came and lived the life you could never possibly live and died the death that you absolutely deserved to die. But I didn't stop there. I rose from the grave to prove that everything I said was true and that I had absolutely conquered Satan's sin and death forever. That is what he says to us. Of course we don't deserve it. That's why it's called grace. The definition of grace is undeserved favor. If you deserved it, it wouldn't be called grace. It would be called wages. So when we say, oh, I don't deserve grace, I know, right? Me neither. That's what makes it so beautiful. That's what stirs worship in me. Because he's given us this thing that we absolutely don't deserve and he's accomplished what we can never accomplish on our own. The cross of Christ releases us from the burden of the law while producing in us grace-dependent, joy-induced, and love-driven obedience that rules could never produce in us. As, As I have the band come back up here again, this is why we do this. This is what we remember on the days when we share in the table, in our Jesus table together. My prayer is that this morning you would come to the table with heavy joy. This thing that we do here, there's there's nothing trivial or flippant about what we do here. There is a weightiness in, in considering what Christ has done to en- and what he had to endure on, on our behalf, and, but there is joy in knowing that he chose to endure it and that we are his family because of it, right? This is heavy. There's, there's weightiness. There's a thickness to this. There's a, there's a world-crushing substance in this act that we share in together as family, as a community, So much so that Paul warns, don't do this in an unworthy manner. Don't do this in selfishness or in self-righteousness. He warns us to to be aware of the hearts that we bring to this table. Jesus himself says, if you're walking up to this table and you look across the room and you see somebody who who has something against you, you stop right there. You put down the bread and you walk over to that person and you ask them forgiveness so that you can come to the table together together reconciled. This is a big deal. It is not trivial and it is not flippant. But neither is it stale or stoic or somber. Law produces somber stoicism. Grace produces weighty joy. So come to the table, and as you come to the table, if, 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 if you do not profess Jesus as, 
as your Lord and Savior, if you don't even know what that means, then, then this is not for you. And that's okay. You just stay where you're seated. Nobody's looking at what you're doing. Nobody notices who's getting up and who's not. It's fine. You just stay there. And I would just encourage you to take the next few minutes and just consider the scripture that I've shared with you this morning. And, and, and is there anything in your heart and your soul that's stirring in you to say, I, I, I want that, I need that? If you, if you call Christ your own, if you belong to Jesus, then I don't care what church you call home, you are welcome at his table. And so we encourage you to come forward. And as you gather around the table with weighty joy and heads high, acknowledging one another, more importantly, be sure that you are acknowledging the one who accomplished what we never could to give us what we could never deserve and so that we could ultimately be who we were created to be. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice. Father, we thank you that in your perfect omniscience, in your perfect justice, from before the beginning you had a plan in place so that your justice would be fulfilled so that your mercy would be on display, so that your abundant grace would be lavished on your sons and daughters. Thank you for making us your own, for doing what seemed impossible, what would be impossible for us. I just pray that as we remember your words of this is your body broken for us and to do this in remembrance of you and as we share in your cup that we remember that this cup represents the new covenant that is in your blood and that we would do this as often as we drink it in remembrance of you. Help us to remember who you are, what you have done, and who we are because of that.